Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? Now we'll go to verses 21 through 24. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Karen. I want to invite you to also grab your sermon notes. Uh, it's on the side of the prayer insert that's there. Um, my intention was the first part was to be review, but the text got printed rather big, so if you want to take any notes, I guess you're going to have to find space in between. In between. Uh, last week, as you'll see from the notes, we began a new series that's designed to help us come to grips with Jesus' call to discipleship. The invitation and challenge of the gospel is to go beyond simply asking Jesus into our hearts, to not just stop at believing in Jesus, but to actually follow him in the practical outworking of our daily lives. It has been said that if you build a church, you don't necessarily make disciples. But if you make disciples, you have a church. We look around and we see a lot of churches. I don't know if we look around and we see as many disciples. Our call is to follow Christ. And as we talked about last week, our roadmap, our compass for following where Jesus leaves leads for living our life in Christ is the Word of God, as we've heard it read, the Bible. But as we discussed last week, for many people, how do we read the Scriptures? How are we, are we to understand the guidance that is offered to us in and through its pages? As we mentioned last Sunday, our study and interpretation of the Bible is to be grounded and can be grounded in two themes out of which the greatest story ever told emerges. And those twin themes, as I introduced them last week, the DNA of the Bible, if you will, are covenant and kingdom. Covenant is about relationship. 
More specifically, covenant is about the way that God develops relationship with his people. As we learned, our most fundamental, our most primary relationship is experiencing God as our father. But covenant is also about how that primary relationship shapes how we are in relationship with each other. And as I left us with last week, and I hope that you engaged in this exercise to reflect on how you picture God, because how we picture God affects our identity. How we think about God affects how we see ourselves and how we engage those around us. Kingdom. Kingdom is about responsibility. Our understanding of how God reigns is informed by how we believe God expects us as his children, those who are in relationship with him, how he expects us to live and act. Our fundamental responsibility, as we talked about last week, is representing our Father. Through our actions or our inaction, we are reflecting the image of the one in whose image we are created. Through our stewardship of all that the Father has entrusted to us, we are making an impression to those who do not know or have a false perception about God as to who he really is. Being part of the covenant... In other words, being in relationship with God means perceiving and knowing God as our Father, which means allowing our identity, our understanding of who we are and everyone else around us to be informed and shaped by our dad, by the one in whose image we're made. Practically, this means that what we live for, how we live together, our sense of purpose, the universal answer to the question, why am I here? The actions we take are to come out of our identity as a child of God, as a child of our Father. To put this together for you, as last week we saw covenant, God as our Father leads to our identity. If you were to put this down, to write this down, to be a covenant people, to be at one with God, means to live in dependence upon our Father. So if you saw it as a a cycle or as a flow, God our Father informs our identity, and out of our identity comes our dependence upon our Father. Or the word we might use is our obedience. Like any parent, our Father directs us. He guides us. And we, as his children, follow his lead. That's what parents do, and that's what children naturally do. And we represent our parents, we represent our dad, our father in this case, by watching, by listening and doing what he does. This is the the, the core of what covenant means. This is the core of our identity and our purpose. And today, in Genesis chapter 3, we get to still kind of immerse ourselves in this understanding by looking at the implications, the consequences of when we get this cycle wrong. When we get this sequence of relationship with God our Father, which informs our identity, which then leads to our sense of purpose, our obedience, when we get it inverted, we get to see today what happens when we live outside of covenant. To live in dependence upon our Father, to take direction from his lead, implies that there are limits, boundaries that we need to be aware of and pay attention to. This is common sense. If you ask someone for directions, there are specific instructions. If someone tells you to go right, that means you don't go left. And if we seek direction from our Father, there are limits, there are boundaries. Through Adam and Eve, God gives humanity, again, authority. 
representing the Father, that they have authority to work in his garden, to work in creation. Out of our identity as his children, our responsibility is to represent our Father's kingship. Because God's not just our Father, we come to understand that God is also king, the king of the universe. And our identity as his children, our responsibility is to represent our Father's kingship. Our purpose, specifically given to us in Genesis chapter 1, is to lead, to rule everything in our care in service to our dad. To live out our identity, our purpose, through our obedience to our Father's direction. Our only boundary, as you've heard it before, was to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And and to break this down, in other words, we were to depend to look to our Father for our ethical decisions. The boundary of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is God saying, depend upon me as your Father for your ethical decisions. As we experience creation, as we live into the covenant, our Father is protecting us from the extra burden that was not part of our responsibility. The extra burden that was not part of our responsibility. Having to figure out and understand the distinction between good and evil. And we have echoes of this, under, this boundary, echoes of this, why this is necessary as we as parents raise our own children. When we bring children into this world, it's a natural instinct for us as parents to protect our children. To shield them from moral ambiguity and ambivalence. We don't take little children and expose them to what we often experience as adults of the gray areas of life. When we get into the kind of questions where we talk about killing, can killing actually be okay if it's in self-defense? Is lying acceptable ever? Is stealing possible given the rights? We don't expose our children to that kind of moral ambiguity and ambivalence. And God, our Father, in setting this boundary, his intention was for all humanity to be protected from this extra, unnecessary responsibility for us. Again, in essence, the Father wants us to look to him for our ethical decisions. Look to me and let me take care of everything else. Depend upon me. But as you heard, the trouble starts. The inversion of how things were meant to be, the inversion of covenant begins when that boundary is tested. A single question frames the story of temptation, and it is a single question that echoes through human history. It is the question that comes up again and again and again. It is no less vibrant or active today than it was at the very beginning of our lifetime as we talk about the definition of human personhood, as we look at what we are capable to do in terms of technology, as we engage some of the most morally ambiguous questions, the predominant question underneath it all is the question that's asked here. Did God really say? Did God really say? Notice what's being challenged by this question. Notice what's being challenged. Did God really say what's being challenged is our dependency on the relationship, our relationship with our Father. Did God really say that your identity can only be found in relationship to him? Did God really want you to live in total dependence upon him? Isn't God just wanting to hem you in? Isn't God just wanting to keep you from living up to your full potential? Aren't you an intelligent, rational person? Do you really need God to handle everything? Beloved, how often are we tempted by the same old lies? How often are we tempted to question our relationship with God? How often are we tempted to create 
our own identity, to define our own identity? How often are we tempted to assert our independence? I mean, if we really stop and think about it, questioning relationships, creating our own identity, asserting our independence, for many of us, whether, and it's kind of almost this, you know, ambivalence, for many of us, these are the very values that we've been taught to celebrate. These are the very values we've been taught to live by. Self-determination. Self-preservation, self-fulfillment, self-gratification. In fact, some people actually believe when they read this story, not within the church, but outside of it, some people actually believe when they read this story, the lie that this story is actually about humanity's liberation. Genesis 3 is the story of humanity's freedom because it's here that we're finally allowed to be independent. We're given the freedom to choose. We're able to establish our own identity, our own path, make our own rules. And again, if we're not tempted by this, think of how often in our culture, and it's across cultures, these are the values that we live by. Make your own way, define your own path, create your own rules. You answer to your own authority. But I want to be clear, my brothers and sisters in Christ, freedom of choice is not the result of what happens here. Don't believe the lie that freedom of choice is the result of what happens in Genesis chapter 3. Our freedom to choose exists before we get to Genesis chapter 3. Our Father, if you missed it before, gives us tremendous freedom. The freedom to represent Him in everything. The freedom to represent Him naturally, we like to say. To represent Him creatively. The only boundary is that we have to represent Him naturally, and that means within the order and structure of what He's created. But we're allowed to represent Him creatively, as He's created us. But we have to respond, represent Him naturally. When we talk about a natural order, we recognize an order and structure to creation, to break it down. And you've all been there. You've all said this to your kids at one point. My house, my rules. If you take my stuff, put it back. Use my stuff the way that I taught you to use it. God is our Father, says, my house, my rules. You are free to, to represent me in everything, creatively. But mind the boundary. The only boundary is, represent me within the order and structure of what I've created. And even within this boundary, the Father gives us the choice to depend on him of not or not. The freedom to depend on him or not. He provides the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as a reminder as a reminder as of the limitation of our moral choices, the limitation of our moral choices, which is a good thing, not a bad thing. He's reminding us that we only have to focus on one thing. Look at me as your father and leave the rest up to me. And yet we've been sold a bill of goods, and many of us, maybe you today believe it, that the more choices, the more free we are. The more choices, the better off we are. The boundary that God sets for us here is not arbitrary. The boundary that God sets for us is designed to protect our relationship, to protect our responsibility to our Father from an unnatural burden, that unnatural burden of having to live outside the order and structure of creation. We've experienced together centuries of human history. Centuries of human history are behind us. We've experienced lots of perceivable progress, and yet I ask, does anyone want the burden of playing God? Does anyone want the burden of having to figure out the knowledge of good and evil? Does anyone really think that we can unravel the nuances, the shades of the knowledge of good and evil? Do we really believe that choices, more and more choices, are good things? 
that that's true freedom? Or is true freedom found in dependence upon our Father? Having to not bear an unnatural responsibility. Well, you know the story. Adam and Eve bit on the serpent's lies, pun intended. And they ingested what we call the forbidden fruit. They pulled back from God's hand upon them. Remember, last week I talked about one way to understand being created in the image of God is God's impression was put upon us. They pulled back from God's hand upon them, distancing themselves from the oneness that they enjoyed. They broke the covenant by inverting the cycle. Their identity was no longer informed by the relationship to their father. Their, their identity was built on their independence. And what's the result? Beloved, what happens when we live outside the covenant? When we're not in right relationship with God, everything else breaks down. Every other relationship in our lives suffers decay. We see this right in front of us with Adam and Eve. Divorced from God, their father, their sense of identity suffers. An empty handprint, if you will, left them conscious of their nakedness. Feeling exposed, disconnected, fatherless, they felt ashamed. Their self-imposed distance from God, their father, caused them to start to become alienated from each other. Ladies and gentlemen, we have history's first marital argument. Adam points his finger at Eve, essentially saying, she made me do it. Eve takes her finger and points at the serpent and says, he made me do it. And the blame game has continued ever since. <laughs> Write this down if you're taking notes. No relationship means no responsibility. You know, we can, we, we can laugh a little bit because we can hear Adam and Eve passing the buck. Adam blames Eve. Eve blames the snake. We can shake our heads as they miss this opportunity. My son, a middle schooler, his repeated you know, issue when he gets to heaven is he wants to meet Adam and Eve because they just screwed it up. We could shake our heads as we see Adam and Eve miss an opportunity and refuse to take responsibility. But as I say to my son, every time he says, like, like, like the number one thing he wants to deal with when he gets to heaven, as I say to him, let me say to all of us, we can shake our heads at their lack of responsibility, but we are no different. It's easy, son, to blame Adam or Eve or Adam and Eve. We're good at blame. We blame the devil. We blame the weather. We blame the government. We blame Wall Street. We blame the media. We blame anything else but ourselves. We blame anything else for so much of what we see happening in our world that we don't like. Assigning blame comes easy. But as we all know, taking responsibility is a lot harder and therefore scarcer. Beloved, when we're not in right relationship with God, everything else breaks down. Even our relationship with creation suffers, as we see here. Irresponsibility makes our work of stewardship, our care of creation, difficult rather than easy. Previously, in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, relationship with God as their father resulted in Adam and Eve experiencing a lack of nothing. No hunger, no pain, no sickness. Totally connected and dependent upon God's ability, life in the garden was a heavenly place, literally heaven on earth. They experienced the peaceful rhythms 
of a balanced universe, the joy of discovering and working the land and the fruitfulness of creation. The most powerful image of that for us is the tree of life that we're told in the very beginning that provided a continual, eternal, life-giving and sustaining flow. But a chapter later in chapter 3, separation from God leads to separation from creation as Adam and Eve are forced out of the garden as the reality of death interrupts the rhythms of the universe, as sweat and toil among thorns and thistles now marks the experience of our work, and as multiplication and fruitfulness come with pain and resistance. The great irony in many ways of the conversion of covenant that we see here in Genesis is that we as humanity end up needing creation more than it needs us. We no longer rule over creation. Creation rules over us. And the consequences, the consequences of a broken covenant only escalate as you read on in Genesis. We haven't looked at these passages today, but you know these stories. No relationship means no responsibility, and it leads to more than just marital tension. It's not long before our first murder is in front of us. And it's brother killing brother as blood is spilled within a family. Not long after that, the depravity, the willful chaos and savagery of humanity, humanity at its height of independence, unleashes a flood of destruction upon the world. Even out of the remnant that survived the rising waters of 40 days and 40 nights, there comes an independent initiative among humanity to be self-assertive in reaching heaven. The story of Babel, we all know the story of Babel. The story of Babel is not about a desire for relationship with God as our father. The story of Babel is the story of a desire for relationship with God as our equal. If God won't touch us, if God won't put his handprint, his affirmation upon us, then we will force his hand by building a tower and touching him. Beloved, it's a cautionary tale there in Genesis, a cautionary tale that every effort at world peace apart from covenant, every effort at world peace outside of our relationship with and our identity through God our Father will always fail. We can keep on having beauty pageants and we can keep on having candidates who say they wish for world peace, but until it comes to our covenant relationship with our Father, it will not happen. We need to appreciate the importance of covenant by understanding its inversion. I laid it out for you through the story, but let me give it to you in very, very simply. Here's how our lives are supposed to work. We know God as our Father, and out of knowing God as our Father, we have our identity as his children. And out of that identity, our sense of purpose, our action, our obedience comes out of representing our Father. We know whose we are, our dads. So we know who we are, his children. And so we act and serve out of the confidence and intimacy of that knowledge, that relationship. It's been a long-standing question in the catechism of the church. What is the chief end of man? To enjoy God and to glorify him forever. That's the way it's supposed to be. That's covenant. But here's the inversion. Here's why the world isn't the way it's supposed to be. Here's why we aren't all that we believe we can be. 
Our purpose, our action, drives our identity. And then it drives our relationship. We get it backwards. Uh, We act, we serve out of an effort to find our identity. To create it, to establish it, to maintain my value, to maintain my worth, to prove my significance. And all of my relationships, therefore, depend on what I do. What accomplishments do do I have? They depend on what I control. What power do I have? They depend on what other people say about me. What's my reputation? And the most unstable, uncertain aspect of life in this inversion is our relationship with others. And you know why it's unstable? You know why it's so broken? Because I'm always changing who I am to fit in, to be accepted. Being a self-made person is exhausting. Being a self-made person is exhausting because you're never done. You're never completely secure, aware, unaware or indifferent towards our relationship with our creator, our father. We're always seeking approval. We're always trying to prove ourselves. We're always fighting for our right to exist and to be heard. Beloved, it's the difference in the practical reality of our life between living as people of covenant and as people of contract. We live as people of contract apart from God. Our relationships are contingent upon what's in it for me. Did you keep up your end? Is this a good deal for me? If not, then I'm going to break the contract or I won't be in contract with you. God, thank the Lord, does not engage us in a relationship of contract. If he did, we wouldn't be here right now. He engages us in a relationship of covenant. This is who I am. This is who you are. Depend upon me. Depend upon me. And everything else will take care of itself. We are victims, my brothers and sisters in Christ, of identity theft. Our true identity as children of our Father has been stolen. We live at a time when identity theft is a rising crime. It goes back to our beginning. We are victims of identity theft. Our true identity as children of our Father has been stolen. We are victims, but the responsibility is ours. Satan The presence of evil in the garden. Here's another myth about this story. Satan, the presence of evil in the garden, has no real authority until Adam and Eve give it to him. God made our relationship very, very clear that we were created in his image, which meant he was our father, which meant that our identity was as his children, and that out of that relationship, out of that identity, we... We were given the responsibility of ruling on his behalf, representing his rulership over the earth. The devil, the serpent, evil, whatever you want to call it, has no real authority, no access to the earth until the bearer of those keys turned them over, which they did. There's a reason in the history of the church why we call Satan the great usurper. We acknowledge that prior to Christ's coming, he is the ruler of the earth because that is our history. That we passed the baton in our irresponsibility, we delegated it to someone to whom it didn't belong. We are victims of identity theft, but we are responsible. Adam and Eve could have looked that snake in the face, turned and lived out of the covenant, saying, no, we won't eat of this tree. We know who our father is. We know who we are, and we're going to live our dependence, our lives out of our dependence upon him in obedience to what he says, get out of here. But they didn't say that. And still today, we don't say that. 
Instead, we promote the lie of the freedom of independence. We promote the myth of the success of the self-made person. We believe in the arrogance of our rebellion against our father and the inversion of covenant continues. Nations keep warring. That's why. Corporations keep cheating. That's why. Governments keep lying. That's why. Schools keep failing. This is why. Marriages keep ending. This is why. Families keep breaking. This is why. Addictions keep growing. This is why. Lack of personal responsibility keeps rising. This is why. Because it's everyone else's fault. Because it's everyone else's fault. It's God's fault. It's God's fault. We choose to be independent. We divorce ourselves from our father and everything falls apart around us. The lack of our dad's presence leaves us with an empty handprint over our heart. And it's that emptiness that's the source of our fears that leads to the confusion of our identity. It's that fear that leads us to work ourselves to death just trying to prove our worth to justify our existence, to define our significance in this world. We have a variety of ages here. How many of you have lived that story? How many of you are still living that story? Try as we may, beloved, to fill up that God-shaped hole in each one of us, that empty place. We can only manage to bring ourselves closer to death. Immortality escapes us. All our stuff burns. All our accomplishments, I don't care who you are, forgotten. All of our influence disappears as someone always takes our place. We need to confront the inversion of covenant. When we're not in right relationship with God, everything else breaks down. I asked you last week to reflect upon how you picture God. I'm asking you again. I'm not turning in homework, but it's kind of homework from your pastor to ask yourself to take what you've heard this morning and to look at your life. Where in what parts of your life is the cycle inverted? Where in what parts of your life is the cycle inverted? Is the wiring crossed? Where in your life are your actions trying to prove or establish your identity? What part of your life are you still living that story? Where is your relationship with your father not at the center of what drives you? What parts of your life? Because we're very good at partitioning our lives. We're very good at compartmentalizing. Where in your life are you trying to prove and establish your identity? Where is your father not at the center? You've got it backwards. And if you struggle to figure out where those places are, let me point you back again to the two symptoms of places you ought to start checking. Where are the places in your life where you are just it's just natural for you to assign blame. Where are the places in your life where you've got lots of blame to put out on something or someone? Where are the places where there's no personal responsibility? It's not my fault. <laughs> not my problem. Those are the places we need to look. Those are the places we need to bring back to our Father. Because the problem with sin is a broken relationship. It's a broken covenant. And we need to deal with the reality of sin I said, I, I was talking to a colleague and I, I said I was talking about Genesis chapter 3 and he said, oh, well, just don't mention sin. I looked at him like, what are you, nuts? He said, I'm not telling you not to talk about sin, just don't use the word sin. Nobody likes that word anymore. And he's right. 
Sin's not a popular word. You want to talk to your friends who are not Christians. You want to talk to your friends who are outside the church. The word will get them going is sin. Sin is not a popular word. It's an offensive word to many. We don't like things to be named as sin. You want to know how much you don't like sin? Give me something you got and I'll name it as sin and then you'll get ticked. We don't like things to be named as sin. We don't like to be called sinners. It's okay in church if it's in a song or if we come up for communion. But you out on the street and someone comes up and says, hey, sinner, how you doing? We don't like that. Beloved, what we fail to appreciate as sin offends us is that sin is no less offensive for our Father. Our Father doesn't like sin either. In fact, he's repulsed by the reality of sin in our lives. He's not repulsed in the same way as we are as humans. We hear that word repulsion and you think Superman who can't handle kryptonite. God's not repulsed in the sense that he can't handle it. God is repulsed by sin in the sense that it doesn't belong among his creation. It's foreign. It's not supposed to be. In other words, God is repulsed by our sin because our Father doesn't want our identity to be shaped by our sins. And that's why here at the end of chapter 3, we see our father taking corrective measures to stop the spread of the disease. Adam and Eve have to move out and get cut off. And there are some parents in this room who had to do the same thing to your children. Get out. Move out. And I'm sorry, but I'm no longer going to continue to support your destructive tendencies. God says, Adam and Eve, you've got to move out. And you are cut off. And we see that and think, that's a severe father. And yeah, it is severe. It's the severity of tough love. But if we keep reading, in Genesis chapter 3 and the rest of the story, God's grace is greater than his judgment. Like a good father, our father has his judgment, but his judgment is aimed at restoration. Adam and Eve are not sent away empty-handed. It's so, so subtle but so significant that God makes clothes for them out of animal skins. He provides for them. Cain murders his brother. God even warns him before he does it. And Cain is safeguarded from retaliation by his father. He's protected. A flood is going to descend upon the earth because of the depravity, the chaos of humanity. But God prepares a family led by Noah to build an ark, a place of salvation. Our Father saves us. The flood, in many ways, is a manifestation of our life apart from God. But the important part of the flood story, which we often forget unless we're teaching children in Sunday school, is the covenant that comes afterwards. Covenant mentioned eight times where God promises through the rainbow that if the flood represents what our life is like apart from God, God promises through the rainbow it'll never go that far again. It'll never go that far again. God reinitiates the covenant, the relationship. He promises not to unmake creation again and commits to remake creation. I want to ask you to do something that for some of you will come naturally and for others of you, you're going to be like, oh gosh, and roll your eyes. Bear with me. So, you don't, so I don't see you roll your eyes. I want you to close your eyes. <laughs> Seriously, close your eyes. And I want you to take your hand and put it over your heart. I don't know this, but I like to think that impression of God's imprint upon us is upon our hearts. I think the psalmist point to that. So your hand over your heart is there for a reason. With your eyes closed, listen to these words. Even though we break our covenant, 
even though we turn our backs on our relationship with our Father, every day, He loves us. Like any father, he makes us face the consequences, but he never lets us go. As the greatest father of all, he walks through those consequences with us. That's because our father's impulse to embrace us is greater than the repulsion that leads us to separate from him. Our father doesn't call us sinners He continues to call us his children. You are a beloved child created in the image of your heavenly father and your father desires to be close to you. His hand and only his hand is meant to fill that void in your chest, in your life. He calls us his children and he comes to us as our brother. In Jesus Christ, he has indeed come and touched, taken and healed our broken hearts. He has shown us how to live in perfect dependence upon our Father. He's taught us who our Father is, who we are as his adopted sons and daughters, and he calls us to live into our responsibility as heirs of his kingdom. From the fallen timbers of a tree that once fell in Eden came the wood upon which Jesus gave his life, for all others in the shape of a cross. Through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, sin is dealt with. All of sin's consequences are done away with, and our identity, your identity, my identity, which was stolen, is restored. The tree of life, which once was split in the great division between heaven and earth, has once again perfectly become entwined as one, as God the Father intends his children to live with him forever in covenant and in kingdom. With your hand on your heart, know that through the presence of the Holy Spirit, your identity is secure in your Father's hand. You have nothing to prove to yourself or to anyone else. Believe that nothing, nothing in all creation can separate you from his loving touch. Trust that your Father's protection is over your heart to guide and guard you in his ways. And live out of that identity. Be dependent upon his leading and direction. Go where he sends you. And do all things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.